My talk today uh, is inspired by the project that I'm currently uh, working on. Uh, it's an ESRC project, the EU Rights Project. Um, I'll talk about it um, more shortly. Uh, the title, Feeding a Xenoskeptic Culture, Legal and Administrative Penalties for Being European. Now, it, up to a point ought to speak for itself but uh, what I'm looking at is how these things interact, the administration of the law and the changes in the law that appear to demonise and discriminate against. And up to a point, I would argue, persecute people for being European, for being EU citizens rather than UK nationals. Now, I, I feel a sort of academic embarrassment about this, and I do have to add the caveat that when I first put this project together and started working on it, it really wasn't a very fashionable topic. And now I just happen to be working on something that's very topical, um, which uh, is just events of overtaking me. I, was work I put this together in um, 2011 slash 2012, um, and it's really sort of in the last, I don't know, six months or so since I've been doing the field work that there has been a lot of momentum gathered around uh, legal and um, regulatory changes as they uh, affect EU migrants claiming welfare benefits. Um, and of course, uh, that's up to a snowballed uh, in light of the European elections which uh, happened last week. And uh, I think it's probably fair to say that the results within the UK of those elections echo some of the sentiments that I'm arguing are resonant throughout the administrative culture of the benefit system in the UK. So within the EU, so EU welfare rights stem from or the, the founding of the European Union. This idea of free movement of persons was always integral to it, um, that workers in particular, as it then extended to other people, to students, to retired people, self-sufficient people in the Playboy Directive, and, uh, and other citizens since then. But primarily workers. We want workers people to cross borders, and we want them to be entitled to equal treatment when they do that. Otherwise, they're not really realistically going to have much of a chance, a fighting chance, of getting a job and retaining a job if they are not allowed the same social and tax advantages as UK workers or as workers within the home member state, in the host member state, sorry. And this was born out in the in a regulation in 1968. That was when the the primary of the secondary legislation on equal treatment for migrant workers uh, was was born out. It was a, the specific expression of a pre-existing right, though, the specific expression of this uh, right of workers to move across borders. That has since been fluffed up and refined, um, and the regulation has been replaced. But the point is, this idea of equal treatment is one that's um, many decades old, even older than me. And it combines this idea of equal treatment in a host state, so you ought to be able to leave your home state, go to, um, let's say, leave the UK, go to Spain, uh, go to Slovenia, uh, go to Romania, and when you're there, be entitled to the same social and tax advantages, which includes the same treatment in terms of welfare benefits as those nationals <coughs> of those member states, and vice versa, we have that system of reciprocity. But that combines with also this idea of coordination. So in a system where you're paying your contributions to one member state, you ought to be able to take the benefit that you're receiving across a border. So there's a combination of obligations on your home state to allow you to take your benefit with you, and obligations on the host state for other sorts of benefits to allow you to get equal treatment. In theory, that should mean that there's a smooth transition, that you're covered at least by one until the other takes over. And <coughs> in systems where you have national insurance contributions being added up, 
You don't lose them by moving between member states because they're all aggregated. Okay? So this is this beautiful idea of smooth transition. Everything adds up. People don't lose out in theory. And the idea is it encourages integration, uh, that people ought to be able to not just simply go and be economic agents, but they ought to be able to uh, set up, settle, have their families there. And that's why the equal treatment provisions extend to families as well, not just individuals in themselves. And this theory has fed into this uh, beautiful ivory tower theory of EU citizenship, where a lot of EU academics have this idea that, uh, well, these are the rules, this is how it plays out. The civis Europea sum is the destiny, that's where we're heading towards. Um, there's a couple of bumps along the way in the case law, but essentially um, we'll, we'll reach a point where we do manage this uh, seamless transition between borders. Um, and that we are encouraging European solidarity and the reactions to that are mixed, you know, so there's plenty of academics who, who fear that, who suggest that it would erode national solidarity, um, that, it's a, that it's a threat. And then there's plenty who, who would welcome it, have hopes for it, it promotes transnational solidarity. Um, and my position, at least uh, for the last few years, has been that it, the fears and the hopes are, are both misplaced in that they, they both overestimate the degree to which EU citizenship actually affects a person's ability to claim benefits. Um, in law, it affect, uh, it's limited because of the get-arounds that member states create. So in the UK, the get-around is the right to reside. This technical construction of the right to reside that uh, you are only entitled to equal treatment if you have a right to reside. And if you are found not to have a right to reside, then it's not considered discriminatory treatment because it's on that ground. It's not on the ground of your nationality. Regardless of the fact that it really is only triggered by the fact of your nationality. So at the, at the very least, it's, it's indirect discrimination on the grounds of nationality, but it is clearly permitted indirect discrimination on the grounds of nationality, at least as far as the Supreme Court is concerned, it was ruled that that is fine. And the European Court of Justice hasn't yet really um, come down against the notion of a right to reside, and if anything, recently has supported the idea. So there is this permitted route of indirect discrimination. So this marvellous uh, vista of EU citizenship, I think, is, is some way away from reach, let's put it that way. And recently, it has become to be realised that there is more of a patchwork going on here in terms of the rights, because it's bits and pieces of citizenship rights that are getting aggregated together, rather than one sort of uh, platonic uh, role towards enlightenment. What we're seeing is uh, kind of one step forward, a couple of steps backwards, a couple of steps sideways. In a recent case, well, it was not that recent now, um, but it's still having ramifications, uh, which is the Ruiz and Brano case in the European Court of Justice, where it was found that EU citizenship could have some degree, some degree of autonomous content, that it wasn't necessary for someone always to have exercised their right of free movement in order to trigger citizenship rights. So prior to that, it was always assumed you had to be mobile, and primarily you had to be economically mobile for you to be claiming citizenship rights across the border. In Rousseau-Brano, you have a, a Belgian child who's never left Belgium, who is exercising their rights in order to allow their third country national parents to stay because if their third country national parents were deported, so would be the Belgian child, who would then be deported out of the European Union. And it was found that fact would violate their citizenship rights. Their citizenship rights entitled them to stay within the EU, even if that meant effectively 
interfering in a, what, what the ECJ is termed a wholly internal situation where only one member state is at play. And the reactions to that uh, were suggestive that, well, here we have an autonomous degree of citizenship, EU citizenship, that can have an effect um, of an own state national in their own state. But of course, the responses were very uh, predictably uh, reactionary by member states. They curbed this right, and particularly the UK, as much as possible. So the Ruiz and Braunier right of residence has been recognised in the legislation. But it has also been cited as a right of residence that does not give rise to other rights, that does not give rise to welfare benefit rights, um, that does not give rise to uh, entitlement for, or for the future universal credit, for instance, um, but also for things like child tax credit and child benefit which are hugely problematic because they are, you know, they are the, the benefits that supposedly the hallmarks of a, a civilised society that want to protect children from poverty. But if you're a child in a Ruiz and Brano family, you're not entitled to those benefits. So my position is, is very much that how we define what citizenship, citizenship rights mean is very much tied to the welfare rights that they give rise to, that they engender. And that where those welfare rights are seriously circumscribed, then the degree of citizenship that we're talking about must be correspondingly diluted. Now, my project is going further down the route of testing uh, the reality of EU welfare rights and EU citizenship and holding it up against this theory, this academic theory. Because I believe that a lot of EU academics, many of whom um, uh, write incredibly uh, persuasively and far more authoritatively than I do on, on aspects of citizenship, nevertheless don't have um, the degree of knowledge of the welfare state system in order to reflect on how well these ideas are borne out in practice. And so my theoretical approach is very much that EU law only becomes manifest when it is used, when it is experienced, that it is relatively meaningless, relatively rhetorical, unless it is actually borne out in a member state's laws. And if those member states' laws, in fact, can be accessed and realised. And so my focus, because it's the, it's the area in which I know about, is the UK as a case study, which is always going to be a challenging testing ground for EU rights. But as the European elections show, it's, the, EU is not the UK is not as much of an anomaly as some may have you believe, that there are quite prominent Eurosceptic approaches within countries like the Netherlands, Denmark, France, towards uh, welfare in particular. And some of the measures that have been taken in the UK are echoed in these other countries. So while the UK is often treated as a, as a case of exceptionalism and therefore not to be paid attention to, my argument is that it is <coughs> quite important, particularly for EU migrants within the UK, to recognise how meaningful these EU rights are. And so, in this project, I am taking on cases, I'm an advisor to Citizens Advice Bureau, um, I take on cases within that bureau and within the northern region, so from other bureaus, and I consult on cases from around the country, not just from CABs, with EU citizens who are attempting to access their welfare rights. And they could be um, workers or students or family members. They may be third country national family members. They may be UK citizens returning. And um, advising and advocating on their behalf. So working with third parties, representing, and documenting, conducting an ethnographic study on the sorts of problems that we encounter um, some of this information is quite granular, down to the length of time per phone call, the quantity of phone calls, 
and some of this information is um, uh, more systemic. And I'm trying to put it together and triangulate it with, with other forms of data as well. So I'm getting uh, data, or, uh, more statistical data from the Air Centre, who represent uh, about 600 EU migrants a year, and, and also focus group data that I'm conducting with other advisors around the country, including uh, the four citizens advice bureaus who are the HMRC Centres of Excellence bureaus. So they're the ones who are um, particularly championing uh, the problems uh, that clients have with HMRC. And as I've been finding out, um, HMRC are in some ways particularly culpable as compared to DWP when it comes to statutory bodies with whom migrants have to deal. And as probably is not much of a surprise so far, it's coming clear that there is quite a significant them and us culture. There's a lot of othering that's going on within the system, um, both informally and more formally, in terms of the extra requirements that are placed on EU migrants, the extra evidential burdens that are placed on them, the treatment that they receive, and the problems that they encounter, um, including uh, the lack of accountability of decision makers, the lack of concern of decision makers for things like their valuable documents and for respecting deadlines and, and those sorts of problems. And as I'm conducting this, documenting the problems, helping the clients pursue uh, their, their actual cases, also trying to put together an advisor's toolkit for generalist advisors so that they will be able to help migrants in similar <coughs> situations that I'm encountering, depending on what I find works and what I find does not work. And also uh, putting together um, more sort of macro challenges on the grounds of discrimination um, and possible judicial review claims. Um, so putting together um, evidence that I'm gathering from uh, a number of clients where I'm spotting more systemic problems rather than um, just pursuing through individual litigation strategies. So, why am I talking about administrative obstacles in the first place, um, if what I'm looking at is the law? And my argument is that an awful lot of, an awful lot of law is focused on the higher courts. And particularly in a European context, people focus on the European Court of Justice um, and, uh, and possibly you know, the Supreme Court. Whereas, for me, um, I'm more interested in how people experience and use the law themselves. And most people who experience and use the law never see a court. Um, and the people that they deal with are decision makers who, in theory, you think, well, they're just making legal decisions. Well, actually, the, I've spoken to a number of decision makers now who've actually used the phrase, oh, well, we're not allowed to look at the law. So in which, in which world are they making legal decisions if they're not allowed to look at the law? They are administrators, essentially, and they are making administrative decisions. Um, and uh, probably could be described as uh, what I know uh, some people in <coughs> sociological disciplines call uh, street-level bureaucrats. And it's not just the decision makers who make the yes or no rubber stamp on a benefits claim I'm interested in, but the people who work in job centres, who are the, the frontline staff, who will often act as gatekeepers <coughs> in the first place as to whether or not someone makes a claim, and how they make the claim, and what they make the claim for. And people on helplines, like the HMRC helpline, and the problems we're encountering there. And so it's this administration of the law uh, that I'm particularly focusing on. And one big aspect that was always an aspect before these uh, new changes came in, that was an administrative problem, was how people deal with the right to reside, how they recognise the right to reside. Because in theory, um, and this is again going back to what it says 
in EU law what the European Court of Justice has said. Uh, benefit planning is not automatically ruled out for non-workers. So in theory, you ought to be able, as an EU migrant, say you've been working and um, you've got a period of not working, you haven't retained your worker status for one reason or another, um, and uh, you need to claim benefit uh, for a short period of time. Now, as far as the uh, ECJ, European institutions, and academia working in the EU are concerned, that should be fine because it's proportionate. You have made your contributions, it's a short period of time. And the UK has consistently and persistently resisted this interpretation because uh, decision makers, these frontline administrators, are told that if the person does not fit into these particular categories as a worker, as a student, etc., um, they are to be refused a benefit. And they cannot, contrary to what the ECJ has claimed, they cannot claim to be self-sufficient uh, because they've claimed a benefit. And that benefit uh, defeats their claims of self-sufficiency. Um, so in the UK, essentially, your EU welfare rights run out at the point when you most need them. Um, and this has, been, uh, this has been challenged, this approach has been challenged in another country, uh, in Austria, in the Bray case in the ECJ. Again, where the, uh, where the court found that, um, okay, so claiming a particular benefit, that benefit could not count towards you being self-sufficient, but that you could still be considered effectively to be self-sufficient for a short period of time in light of all the other circumstances. And this has rebounded back into the UK. That was cited in um, a number of courts, in the tribunals, and in the upper tribunal. And so far has been rejected again um, in the upper tribunal case VP, uh, where it has been found that uh, if you are claiming a benefit, you are automatically found not to be self-sufficient because the UK does not have any prior test of self-sufficiency. And the reasoning uh, by the judge in this case was the European Court of Justice must have just been thinking of countries where that test happens. The European Court of Justice didn't say this, but this is what has been put into the, into the mouths of the European Court of Justice by UK courts. Um, so essentially, as soon as you claim benefit, you're found not to be self-sufficient. Um, and that is, uh, again, a computer says no position. That is a straightforward, if you make a claim for income support and you don't fit into a category, you will get an automatic refusal. There is no degree of discretion. There is no looking at the circumstances of the case. All of that can only happen if you then go through an appeal process, which of itself can be quite lengthy and demanding and difficult. Other administrative areas uh, include, I mentioned evidential burdens earlier, one area in which evidential burdens are particularly cumbersome are permanent residence rights. So if you have clocked up five years lawful residence in a member state, you ought to be entitled to permanent residence, which then gives you full equal treatment rights for the permanent resident EU citizen. However, while this right looks quite straightforward on paper, and again, uh, in the EU literature would suggest it's fairly obvious how that arises. In the UK, it can be incredibly difficult to document your five years in order to show that you have permanent residence rights because of the massive evidential burdens that are being placed on people. The assumption seems to be that it's really only available for people who have basically just worked in one job for five years, because that's nice and easy to evidence. Whereas a lot of EU migrants are in and out of lots of different jobs, and they have what may be uh, gaps in between those jobs. And depending on the length of those gaps, which can be quite short, they can still be found to have broken continuity of residence. And that uh, where they have moved in between jobs, if they haven't kept all of their P60s or not being given all of their P60s and their P45s and their wage slips, 
um, which can amount to briefcases full of paper, then, again, they may be found not to have permanent residence. Um, and this is in spite of the fact that the Home Office, who makes these permanent residence decisions, could look at their tax records. <laughs> but they don't. They could look at their tax record and see if they've been making contributions. But what they demand is that uh, these uh, leave watch files full of um, paperwork provided, and they must uh, exactly connect. And again, where people have not only been moving jobs, but been moving house, um, uh, which is very problematic, you know, people clear things out, whether or not they've kept things, particularly in cases of relationship breakdown, where people have got different bits of paperwork that's gone different ways, where people have been in tied accommodation and been subjected to frequently quite serious levels of exploitation and then left that tied accommodation and have effectively had to um, uh, run away, uh, leaving things behind them. Um, they don't necessarily have a lot of paperwork. So yeah, very problematic, right? Um, the pregnancy cliff edge. Now, this is something that may be being remedied fairly soon, we don't know. Um, hopefully, uh, in the Sompre case, um, which is a European Court of Justice case, uh, dealing with uh, a pregnant EU migrant who um, stopped work because of complications with her pregnancy, she was ill, she couldn't continue to work, um, she did not have retained work status, um, she wanted to claim income support for a short period of time before she went back to work after her child was born, and she was refused. Um, in hindsight, it did indeed turn out to be a short period of time because she went back to work within three months. Um, and the problem here is that EU law provides for a retained worker status in a number of circumstances, including if you stop work because you're ill, but does not provide for it if you stop work because you're pregnant or have a pregnancy-related illness. And this has been challenged as you know, a case of sex discrimination, that you're valuing illness more than pregnancy, you're um, giving better rights to the sick man than the pregnant woman. Now, the Advocate General has um, given an opinion on this case, a very positive opinion. Um, this was a case that was referred by the UK Supreme Court um, with, a, with a very powerful reference written by um, the marvellous uh, feminista uh, Brenda Hale, um, who actually laid out um, all the arguments effectively in favour of finding people in this situation to have retained worker status and therefore to be allowed benefits. Until we hear back, we don't know what the, what the result will be, but hopefully it's positive. Until this point, however, there have been hundreds and thousands of women who have been advised by the Job Centre, so this is where I get back to the administrative point, advised by the Job Centre, because they are um, in the last stages of pregnancy, or because they are looking after a baby, they are a young parent, to claim income support. And as soon as they make that claim, the walls come tumbling down because they are found not to have a right to reside. It's that automatic, you don't fit into the category, you don't have a right to reside, you don't have income support, and therefore you're not passported onto housing benefits or council tax support. And then, before you know it, you have a notice seeking possession of your house and you're being sought uh, for council tax arrears. And all of this spirals out of what's essentially misadvice from the job centre. And there's been very little done to systemically challenge this. And this is going to continue to be a problem, whatever the outcome of Sompre is, because it affects lone parents with children who are not just babies. Sompre just deals with, with babies in the aftermath of birth, um, only essential women are going back. But lone parents with children under five are frequently being advised to claim income support. Now, in theory, actually, that would, <laughs> you, you could see the rationale for that, but the problem is the UK does not provide for them to be entitled. Administrative problems, making claims. So what are the problems that we've been encountering so far, apart from those ones that I already knew pre-existed? Um, well, there's, there's a great deal, and I'm sure there are a great deal that I haven't even yet spotted. I haven't had a time, chance to really comb through any of the data yet. Um, but it's quite clear that this idea of a smooth transition between member states, 
um, is, uh, is something of a chimera, something of a fallacy. But there is very little seamless contact between member state authorities, different member states. So where the UK receives a benefit application and thinks, well, we need to find out what this person's entitlement in Spain would be. Because it's possible Spain is the competent state. That's the last place that they worked. OK, so there's a nice straightforward database, a nice straightforward interface for them to use an electronic interface. A straightforward question to ask. They should get information back. It doesn't work like that. Actually, what seems to be happening is that uh, an authority receives an application for a benefit where it's a bit complicated, someone's been in different member states, and rather than thinking, well, what do we need to find out, they think, well, we'll reject it. And it gets rejected, and it bounces back. And then, at some point, if someone actually gets to the stage of appealing, that's where someone looks into what information is actually necessary. And then when they look into what information is necessary, it can take them months and months and months and months and months and months before they decide who they need to write to and what they need to ask. And then, when you request, as I have been doing, copies of the correspondence that the UK has sent to <coughs> Portugal, Spain, Poland, you find that there's a certain amount of nonsense in what they've written because they've cut and pasted things from other forms. And so they refer to the wrong country, um, they make statements rather than ask questions. And so the person receiving this in another country who's not a native English speaker is understandably confused and may not send the right information back. And then if that doesn't happen, what we end up with is more months and months and months of delays. <coughs> and delay is sort of the biggest obstacle, really, the biggest obstacle to accessing rights and accessing justice for EU migrants. Because it's effectively refusal without accountability. Because if someone gets a decision and it's a refusal, and they can appeal, and they can get themselves heard. Whereas if a decision is never made, then they don't get what they're entitled to, and they can't challenge it, because there is no decision. And this delay issue is, is prevalent and, and hugely problematic. And often it results in people never even challenging things, or never getting uh, their entitlements, because they uh, may have returned to the, another member state because they can't survive without getting any money. Um, or they may have since um, found a job, or they may be in different circumstances, um, in which case they're, they're no longer reliant on whatever they were claiming in the first place. So delay is a way of pushing off making payments. Uh, the uh, helpline problems and wrong advice. So I've touched upon some of the wrong advice you get from Job Centre Plus. HMRC, uh, I mentioned briefly, are particularly uh, troublesome in some ways. Um, they are particularly troublesome in the delay point, which I'll look at on the next slide, but also in the advice that's given. I myself have had arguments with HMRC helpline advisors, so not the clients themselves, but they argue with, with their representatives about whether or not someone who is making a claim, had it refused, wants to appeal, put in an appeal, their circumstances change, so they want to make a new claim, but they want to keep the appeal live. Now this is common practice, certainly as far as DWP are concerned. HMRC do not seem to be able to compute this and have argued with me you can't do that. You must drop the appeal if you want to make a new claim. Um, you will do more harm than good if you try to keep both alive. And you can see how with arguing that kind of vigorously with EU migrants themselves, they will intimidate people. They will scare people who don't really necessarily know fully what their rights are, who think, well, in that case, I'll make my new claim. I'll drop my appeal. I've got, I know my new claim will work because my circumstances have changed because I'm in work or because my husband is now living in the UK. Therefore, I'll drop the appeal, which can often be a, you know, a year's worth of benefit, a large amount of benefit. Um, in, in one case I had, it was um, amounting up to £11,000 of child tax credit. Um, and that kind of pushing people to relinquish their entitlements, to relinquish their chance to access 
um, justice is, is problematic and does seem to be quite systemic because I've encountered it so many times. Um, other helpline problems are, it's always more quotidian. The fact that, and I'm sure we've all encountered these automated telephone helplines that really do your brain in where you want to take a hammer to a telephone um, because <laughs> someone does not understand what you're, or the, the helpline, the automated helpline cannot understand what you're saying. And so you get this voice going back at you saying, you want to move house, is that correct? You say, no, I want to claim child benefit. You want to move house, is that correct? <laughs> no, I want to claim child benefit. You want to appeal a child tax credit decision? No, I want to claim child benefit. And those are the problems that native English speakers are having with this helpline. So people who have um, broken English or just very strong accents um, are encountering even more problems. And the fact that it cuts people off as well. Um, so you go around in a circle, you go around in a circle, and then you get cut off. Um, how people manage to, to get through is, is a bit of a moot point. And it's only the people who then go and seek further advice and go to a CNB who then have access to another phone number um, or another avenue of contact that, um, that will actually get through. Um, evidential obstacles we've touched on with permanent residents. Evidence missing. Um, so documents disappear that get sent to HMRC and the UDP. And often very important documents, ID documents. So a client who then needs to go back to their member state because they've got a sick parent, suddenly can't go because they haven't got their passport, they haven't got their ID card. And there's a degree of relinquishing of responsibility going on here because it seems to happen quite a lot and yet there is very little concern over the protection of these documents. Um, the, uh, the office will, the, let's say the child benefit office will conduct a search for a week or two and then get back to you and say we can't find it and you can't prove that you sent it to us. Even if the client sent it recorded delivery, um, they'll say well we received something but we don't have any proof that that was in there. Um, and again, certainly you, are, you have to ask well what can the client do to prove it? And the onus ought really to be on them, I would suggest the onus ought to be on uh, those who demand these very important documents to, to suitably protect them. Once the claims have been made, right, so there is very poor decision making um, in some cases, let's say by DWP, HMRC, where there is a certain refusal by default going on, rather than looking necessarily at, at circumstances or exercising discretion. And the complexity of some of the bits of laws that are necessary to invoke are, are, is often just not appreciated by the, the people who are making these decisions. Um, and up to a point, we can say, well, what are they expected to do? If it's going to be very complex, it will inevitably go to appeal. But some of these things go down to just very poor information gathering in the first place. So I have one client who was about to be forced to go down the appeal route until I finally did manage to speak to the original decision maker to point out that she was married to a migrant worker. They weren't living together, but she was married to him. Um, and that, uh, that, that, that conveys the, the necessary rights, and it's a very simple point. But because in all the information that was gathered at the application stage, she wasn't asked whether she was married to her partner from whom she was separated. She was rejected from the benefit because she wasn't asked whether she was married. Um, compliance <coughs> and sanctions. So people who uh, put in claims or then put in appeals are often subjected to HMRC compliance procedures where they're basically investigated, which under the Tax Credits Act, um, they supposedly only do if there is grounds to suspect something, um, some degree of misdemeanor, some, some fraud. Um, but there is a degree to which there does not seem to be very many grounds in many cases for that suspicion, other than the fact that this is an EU claimant making a claim. And sanctions, this is an area I've not yet gathered very much information on, but I'm, look, I'm hoping to gather information about, in particular, the effects of the <coughs> new changes, the new rules as they apply to job seekers, because I suspect they're going to result in greater degrees of sanctions being applied to EU migrants as opposed to UK claimants. 
absence of dialogue, uh, or fairly straightforward, uh, it's a bit of a black hole um, where these claims get sent. Uh, there's a famous office in Wick uh, that does have not that has no phone number um, that you can't contact. And uh, whenever you phone up the uh, the office below, they will not put you through. Um, they cannot give you a phone number. They may take your details and suggest that someone might phone you back, but frequently does not happen. Um, I spoke to one advisor who said that uh, she once received a letter that accidentally had a phone number printed on it, and she phoned it up, and then um, the next day that phone line had been cancelled. So it's, um, yes, uh, as uh, it has been said um, by, uh, by another advisor in the focus group, that the whole thing is quite <coughs> correct, that uh, you, you are shouting into a black hole, and you've no idea where it's going. And there's this sort of cloak of mystery around the whole thing. And again, delaying decisions. So this is where HMRC is particularly culpable. But if you have your original decision and you want to appeal it, you have 30 days in which to submit your appeal. And that's, that can be quite a tight deadline. Especially if, um, if someone has moved house and the mail has not received them or whatever. HMRC may then receive that appeal and just sit on it and sit on it, and sit on it, because they are not obliged, they are not under any deadline to then submit it to the tribunal. So you've submitted your appeal in time, and you may not hear anything back for a very, very, very long time. I know a manager at the CAB who's been working there for 15 years, and she says she has never seen a HMRC case get to tribunal, because they just never do. They just sit on them. And they, they may just decide them informally in your favor, um, but, Essentially, uh, they, they just uh, continue very protractively. And that's a, that's a big problem. And it's one in which tribunals ought to be doing a little bit more and being more proactive, because they do have case management powers to request HMRC to, uh, to submit appeals to them. Um, but that requires claimants with the know-how to request the tribunal to make that request. Moreover, it requires the tribunal itself to know what its own powers are. Um, and while judges in the tribunal may know that, the clerks of the tribunal don't necessarily know that. So they may receive a request and then just get the claimant will just get written back to them saying, um, we can't do anything about this, but it's up to HMRC to submit it. New rules, new obstacles. This is the thing that's been um, rolling out bit by bit, drip, 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 since November last year. Um, that we really want to prevent EU job seekers from claiming benefits. So we've got a new three-month rule that you have to have been living in the UK for the la or the common travel area uh, for the last uh, three months before you claim uh, job seekers allowance. Um, the new habitual residence test, many more questions, much more robust in theory, and EU job seekers are no longer entitled to housing benefit. Now the three-month rule so far, from what I've seen, is having quite a perverse effect in that EU jobs, it, it's quite unusual for an EU migrant to arrive and straight away claim jobs in Thailand, um, or to want to do so for, for a lengthy period of time. Um, the people, and when they do, they would have to wait a period anyway to be established to be found to be habitually resident. The people who are being most affected, I think, from this rule, are UK returners who are used to and entitled to under EU law coming back to the UK from another EU state and making a claim straight away for job seekers allowance. And they are being told that they are not entitled because they've not been resident for, for three months. <coughs> and that, I think, is quite clearly contrary to um, EU law. There is case law on this. Um, but it just it's going to have to take possibly years for that challenge ever to be mounted. Um, though, believe me, I'm starting mounting the challenges, um, but we have to accept that the first tribunal is unlikely to make the necessary decision. Uh, the other changes, the, well, the housing benefit change is going to be quite dramatic, especially because a lot of the EU migrants who are on job six allowance are frequently your lone parent EU migrants, people who may have been abandoned or may have left their migrant worker partners um, under conditions that include domestic violence, for instance. And because of the 
welfare system. They are not allowed to claim income support, even if they have a child under five. So they claim job seekers allowance. Now, if they make those claims, they will not be entitled to housing benefit by virtue of that. And so they and their children will not have the necessary statutory support, which suggests that there is going to be quite a serious tension um, and quite serious stress being placed upon local authorities and their duties um, under um, the Children Act uh, to support children um, and prevent them from, from homelessness. Whether or not local authorities actually respond to that is, is, um, is open to question. Um, but I think it's going to have quite a serious dramatic effect on quite vulnerable sections of the population. The general prospects of work test, uh, ge genuine prospects of work test. So now you'll be booted off job seek to lands if you don't show that you've got genuine prospects of work after six months. Um, now in theory this always applied or was always le legal under EU law um, but hadn't been robustly enforced. Now it appears to be being very robustly enforced in that you need to show compelling evidence of a prospect of work. Now, there's been very little guidance on what compelling evidence constitutes, but it's suggested that it may, it may be an actual job offer, um, which is a pretty high threshold for showing that you've got a genuine prospect of work. In fact, it really means that you're a worker as far as the law is concerned. Um, so it will be interesting to see how that plays out. And in July, we're going to see the withdrawal of child tax credit and child benefit from job, EU job seekers. So again, we're seeing this kind of attack mounted, particularly on EU job seekers, or EU migrants on job seekers lines, many of whom are women with children. Um, and the withdrawal of job, job centre plus interpretation facilities. So we've been spending far too much on interpretation, um, so we're not going to provide it. Now, it seems, again, to me, slightly perverse to say that we don't want these migrants on benefits, we want them in jobs, to actually take measures that make it more difficult for them to get jobs. Um, and measures that make it more difficult for them to understand conditionality and the rules that are being placed on them. And this is where I think we may be seeing the increase of sanctions in the future, where migrants who have not been provided with interpretive facilities do not necessarily understand their obligations under job seekers allowance and then may fall foul of them and then may be subject to sanctions. Um, and I think it's it, it, it's all slightly counterintuitive and it interacts as well with um, what has been noted by some advisors um, in Job Centre Plus of reluctance to enrol migrants on training courses or to provide them with ESOL training, um, which is a second language. Um, because those things are going to be sort of mutually reinforcing. If you don't train them, they won't speak English. If you don't provide interpretation, they won't understand. New rules, new obstacles, not just applied to people who are on job seekers allowance. Um, the minimum earnings threshold test. So this idea that you have to have earned £150 a week in order to be uh, considered a worker. Now, it's not, it's not a cut and drive test. It's a two-tier test um, in order to at least uh, in theory, stay within the bounds of what's lawful and EU law. So, if you've earned less than £150 a week, uh, you'll then have your case examined as to whether or not your work has been genuine and effective. Um, however, I have my concerns and suspicions over how genuine and open this assessment will be and how rigid the £150 threshold may be treated. Um, because while in EU law there's this idea that part-time work is a very important source of income and should be recognised and <coughs> very frequently genuine and effective, um, as the ECJ said, constitutes for a large number of persons an effective means of improving their living conditions, the decision-maker guidance on the minimums, minimum earnings threshold uh, states earnings below £150 is not nececessarily always marginal and ancillary, um, which as a statement of probability is pretty guiding really. Um, it's not necessarily always, uh, but it probably is marginal and ancillary. 
Um, which, again, if you're providing guidance for decision makers, you don't look at the law, you only look at the guidance. That's quite telling. And so I'm, again, going to be interested in seeing how that actually plays out. Um, the guidance also suggests that the person has to have been exercising their rights as a worker, um, primarily as a worker, and that therefore you should look at their motivation for working. And I think this is problematic because, again, the EU, uh, the court, the UCJ, has said that a person's motivation is irrelevant. So if someone is a student but is also a part-time worker, they ought to be considered to be a migrant worker. Whereas I think the guidance is clearly directing people towards thinking if you're a student, primarily a student, that's what you are, you can't also be a worker. And it also touches upon what I think is a very problematic UK case about capacity, um, suggesting that if you're examining whether someone's work is genuine and effective, examine their, their disabilities and their physical capacity for the work, and therefore whether or not it was realistic. And this is just all sorts of post hoc spurious um, discriminatory assumptions about, uh, about what someone is capable of, rather than you know, inviting an open assessment with looking at adducing evidence from an occupational therapist and questions of reasonable adjustment. Just this ad hoc, um, quite uh, problematic assumption about disability, perhaps undermining someone's intention to work genuinely and effectively. Uh, there's a whole bunch of other things influencing what's going on, including wider welfare reforms. Uh, mandatory reconsideration means that um, appeals uh, are not happening uh, very straightforwardly. That uh, when someone has uh, had their benefit claim rejected, often effectively by default, um, and they want to appeal it, uh, they first have to go through this new mandatory reconsideration hurdle. Which uh, those of us who are cynical view as simply being an extra hurdle to create more problems to act as more of a bottleneck. Um, because it doesn't seem to do anything. People don't actually seem to reconsider. What they seem to do is produce reasons for the original decision, but uh, I haven't seen anyone change any of their decisions based on mandatory reconsideration. Um, what it means, however, is that the person is longer without benefit. Because often, if you're making an appeal, if you submit an appeal, you can be awarded some benefit pending the outcome but you can't be awarded benefit pending the outcome of mandatory reconsideration. So it prolongs the period in which a person has no income and therefore is coping, um, but having difficulty coping often. Um, and may, maybe pushes them um, in a different direction to find work even if they're not necessarily fit for work or to uh, go back to another member state. Um, legal aid and costs, obviously welfare has been massively restricted in terms of uh, the legal help that's available, um, and so uh, EU migrants often find it difficult to assert their rights, particularly if it's going to uh, to a court with a with high rights of audience. Which is where these judicial review cases come in and are increasingly important, because that's where that's an area in which there is still legal aid available, and other welfare reforms going on, including the change, the move to universal credit. EU migrants, not yet, and probably not for a long time, subject to universal credit, but as and when they will be, there are rules built into the regulations, um, subject, subjecting them to full conditionality, whatever their circumstances. Uh, again, quite a sort of directly discriminatory on the grounds of nationality provision, that even if you're caring for a child, you're not allowed the same concessions that an EU, a UK national would be in terms of you know, the the distance from home you're expected to look for work and the time you're expected to look for work and those sorts of things. Full conditionality, whatever your circumstances. Um, the exclusion um, of Zambrano families from universal credit, possibly excluding EU job seekers from everything but the basic element, and no exportation of universal credit. So, I argue that there's a a legal and administrative clash, a perfect storm of um, xenosceptic sentiments going on. Um, that the administrators 
who are already predisposed to be a little bit wary of these, uh, of these claims are effectively being instructed and shaped by the uh, increasingly uh, problematic and suspicious framework, legal framework, to, uh, to make their decisions in, in increasingly suspicious ways. Um, and these administrators interact with the law in the sense that they, you know, they're responsible for interpreting the law, e.g. areas of discretion <coughs> such as how rigid the 150 pound threshold should be, operationalizing the law in terms of how fast they deal with things, how accurate their correspondence is, and insulating the law, protecting it um, by stymieing appeals, by uh, acting obstructively, by cloaking decisions in mystery, by deflecting and deterring claimants. I mean, effectively what we see is what was already quite an indirectly discriminatory system being impacted upon by quite more directly discriminatory rules, which amplifies what were originally relatively subtle differences in treatment are suddenly becoming quite a lot more pronounced to create this sense of institutionalised xenoscepticism. Uh, which I've argued has not really been suitably scrutinized. The basis, uh, the rationale for these new legal and regulatory changes has not been properly uh, questioned or challenged. Um, it, it, it's all kind of uh, law by media in a sense. Um, there's a lot of discussion on the government's own website um, about things that suggest benefit tourism and fraud. The Prime Minister has made it clear that abuse and clear exploitation of the UK's welfare system will not be tolerated without any evidence of there being abuse or clear exploitation. Um, from tomorrow, tough new rules come into force to ensure that migrants don't take advantage of the British benefit system without any evidence that migrants have been taking advantage of the British benefit system. Accelerating action to stop rogue EU benefit claims without even any examples of what constitutes a rogue EU benefit claim. And this is on the government's website. And then in the media, it sort of it, it gets sort of escalated even further. Um, so there's an absence of scrutiny of the, the basis for these changes, and an absence of scrutiny of the changes themselves, in that they've been rushed through. The housing benefit regulations were rushed through without um, consulting the Social Security Advisory Committee, as is normally the case for uh, for welfare changes, or without consulting local authorities, as you would normally have to do for housing benefit cases because it was so urgent. And there was no explanation of why it was so urgent, other than presumably the government were anticipating a torrent of Romanians and Bulgarians um, battering down our doors on the 1st of January, which, as we know, did not happen. Policies and statistics are being announced via the media rather than by the government. Um, so, uh, for instance, the response to the UKIP uh, success European elections was that uh, the government may be now restricting JSA from six months to three months, but we only know that because they've announced it through the BBC, through Sky, through the Daily Mail, through the Daily Express, not, not through any of the parliamentary channels. And statistics are being quoted in the Daily Telegraph that have not been um, provided uh, through the government's normal uh, statistical output. Um, so that they can't be analysed for counter-interpretations. And this whole atmosphere um, creates one of uh, decision-making or street-level bureaucratic suspicion and trigger, increases the amount of triggers for caution. They are necessarily going to be aware of what the purpose of these rules are and this assumption that we want to reduce migration, which is, which, which is the stated government's aim, which again runs counter to, to the spirit of the EU entirely. We want to reduce migration. Um, and it creates more uh, problems by default. So again, where I was seeing problems a few years ago that uh, were more frequent in EU claims than UK claims, they're often just almost always the case in EU claims. And I think that's going to increasingly be the case. So this is essentially our source of authority for the government's future plans, rather than anything the government has said directly themselves. Um, so, uh, yes, essentially, 
it's all quite messy and it's getting messier and I think that these legal and administrative uh, elements are interacting uh, to create a, a xenosceptic culture within which uh, EU migrants are necessarily disadvantaged and that represents an important shift in our welfare system and in our welfare imaginations about what we think welfare is for, who it is for, and the restrictions we place on it, and our tolerance of destitution, and our ability to say, well, of course, an EU migrant child should not be entitled to, uh, to, to the benefits that are necessary to allow them to have a roof over their head or to have food in their tummy, because that's an EU migrant child. And that, I think, is something that's seriously, seriously problematic. And we do need to actually step back and think about what it is that makes our welfare system human.